0: that many men and women have done with power bosses have done in the workplace presidents have done in government and political officials taking advantage of the power that they have judges and lawyers abusing power and so we conclude power is bad but listen do we not need power even to the point of resurrection power does not corrupt but it does show our corruption. The the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest because they have a misunderstanding of power and they have a misunderstanding of Jesus' kingdom. Uh, The disciples of Jesus saw his kingship as an earthly reign. Israel is currently under the oppressive rule of Rome and the people are looking for a deliverer, a, a redeemer, a king that would come and take back their freedom and rescue them from the Roman kingdom. They were looking for a Messiah, but not a spiritual Messiah. Not someone that would just save us from our sins. We need someone that will set us free here on earth, not a divine king from the Davidic covenant but a political puppet from their political convictions. This is why every time Jesus prophesied his death, the disciples dismissed it. This is why Jesus rebuked Peter's attempt to convince him of an alternate route towards redemption. Remember when Jesus was asked by Pilate, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' response was, my kingdom is not of this world. If if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And even in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus explains the coming of the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, And he tells them that they will receive power when they receive the Holy Spirit. Their first question out their mouth is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Y'all, Jesus has died and is about to go to heaven. They still don't get it. Jesus' heavenly and eternal kingdom was being viewed with temporary hopes and fleeting expectations. They're arguing over Who is the greatest among them? And so Jesus, in verse 2, calls to him a child. Now, Mark 9 and Luke 9 uh, supports this account. They they, they share in this story. And uh, here in Matthew 18, Jesus puts the child in the midst of them. In Mark 9, Jesus put him in the midst of them and picks him up with his arms. And in Luke 9, he sets him beside him. Uh, This, my brother says, very easily could have been Jesus getting a child, placing him in the midst of them beside him, and then picking him up to talk to him. This is simply corroboration. It is not contradiction. He gets the child, and based off, thankfully, Mark's account of him picking him up, We assume he's a small child, perhaps a toddler. uh, I would use my son as an example, but the way he's behaving lately, he doesn't match these qualities I'm about to give. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, It's a small child, At, at, at most a toddler, but could very well possibly be an infant. And he picks this child up and he says, unless you turn... It's the same word for repent, which means the direction you're going, go the opposite. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter. It's not even that you won't be the greatest in the kingdom. You won't even enter the kingdom. They're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus said, you need to be concerned if you can get in. He says, unless you become like, what's the child like? What's the child like? Now, I don't want you to look at your teenagers and start giving the wrong attributes here. What is a child like? Children are gullible. You know what I'm saying? Naive, innocent. They're innocent. They're innocent to many levels to the degree that we wish we were. They're oblivious to things that I wish I was oblivious to. But now that I'm 32, right, right? There are some things that I don't do that I used to do when I was 14 and 12 because I'm I'm more aware of things. I'm more aware of the cost of health insurance and and medical bills and, and, and things like that. Children are dependent. They are completely depending on the person that is supposed to care for them. My son does not check my bank account every now and then to make sure we have enough money to provide for him. He simply depends on my wife and I to provide for him. He doesn't look at the the bills and make sure that we're doing a great job with managing them so that he can have heat and and, and coolness when it's appropriate. He simply depends and relies on us to provide whatever it is that he needs. And even when he thinks he knows what he wants, sometimes we will hold it from him because he doesn't know what he wants. I'm talking about my son right now, Shalom, okay? And he is fully dependent on us. A child is trusting, sometimes too trusting. And so you have to teach them to what degree to trust. A child is harmless. No one in here is concerned about a three-year-old charging at you with all their might to attack you. They can't harm you. As much as they would like, fists and feet kicking. Now, yes, fathers, and, and, you know, if you're wrestling with them and and you get knocked out and you're laying on the floor and he climbs the couch without you knowing and jumps on the back of your neck, yes, he's then dangerous. (laughs) But we're just saying a child is harmless. And because they're harmless, they're defenseless. A child cannot defend himself when faced with danger. That's why the guardians and the parents are the ones that are supposed to be there at all times to protect the ones that cannot protect themselves. Unless you're like a child. But Jesus lets us know in verse 4 what he means. He lets us know of all the great attributes, of all the positive attributes that he's trying to make the disciples. Because Richard, I, I, Richard and I, we have this, this connection here. We're looking at the disciples. We're already saying they're acting like children already. <laughs> all the fussing and arguing and not understanding the message that he's telling them. But Jesus says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself. Now we see what this turning away needs to be from. They're going towards Pride and arrogance, and they need to turn towards humility. A child is humble. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this this humility the way I'm going to describe it because in today's society, we have children, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, in movies. We have two-year-olds and three-year-olds making millions of dollars on YouTube, and four-year-old, it's hard to understand. But in, the, in Jesus' day and time, a child had nothing. They had nothing to brag about. They had nothing to bring to the table. They had nothing to take their identity in, except for the fact that they were a child of their parents. And since my son isn't a movie star, that's the only thing he can take pride in. Is that I belong to Mama and Dad Dad. They take their identity in the one that is guarding and protecting them and looking over them. My son does almost everything I do now. I have to watch all kinds of behaviors. Even today, after I get finished preaching, he, he's looking forward to one thing and one thing only, for me to wrap this sermon up so we can go fishing. Why does he want to go fishing? There's only one reason, because that's what I do. I go fishing a lot. And he's like, Dada, because you're fishing, I want to fish. A child cannot belittle someone about what they do and do not have. A child cannot come in and, and immediately address where they work at and their position and their pay. A child is humble and Jesus calls us to humility. Have you have you been to uh have you been to the humility class? Have you sat in on the lectures? Humility one on one? Many of you all know I'm a professor and and i could spend months teaching on humility i could but we're going to do a brief introduction to the humility one on one course because after all pride is the thing that can make a man and a nation fall i'll say it again because that was not the the, solid, the pride is what makes a man and a nation fall Jesus says for one from one one brief lecture Jesus says when you go to a wedding reception to sit at the least important seat because it is more it is better for you to be called up than to be asked down uh When I was in seminary, my professor was talking about the qualities of a Christian. He was asking the students, what qualities do you think are most important for Christians? And my answer, because it was the only answer I've ever been given uh, through my mentors and pastors that helped bring me up, was humility. And my professor said, if the realtor's slogan for finding a house is location, 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 then the Christian motto and slogan for living is humility, humility, humility. Have you been to the humility one-on-one class? C.S. Lewis stated that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. You need to have the right view of yourself. The Bible says that no man ought to think of himself higher than he ought to be, but that also is understood that you shouldn't think of yourself lower than you ought to be. After all, you are made in the image of God. Jesus is a great example of not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In John 13, the Bible says Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew that he was from God, and he knew he was going back to God. And yet, his focus was on his disciples, not on himself. Jesus knew, in John 13, that he had all power from God, and yet his focus was not on abusing that power, but to use that power to watch to wash feet. Humility 101. Philippians 2, 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that is, Jesus, who was in the form of God, and even though he was God, did not count equality with God something to grasp. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the worst death, death on a cross. Jesus displays the pride of the Pharisees and the meekness of the sinners in a parable in Luke 18. Where the Pharisee coming to the temple and his prayer is very simple. He looks up to heaven and says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like the sinners and I'm not like the tax collectors. And then a the tax collector, who is in the temple, has a little bit more complicated prayer. He he looks down to the ground because he's not worthy to look up towards heaven. He rips his garment and he beats his chest and he simply says, "Lord, I am a sinner." And you know what Jesus' uh, ending of that parable is? It says this: For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus tells them they need to humble themselves like children. And then he goes on talking, and he says in verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then verse 6, But whoever calls one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown in the depth of the sea. Now, I've seen a lot of Christian tattoos. I've not seen that Bible verse tattooed on anybody's arm or shoulder. Jesus is he has been talking about children, and he's been using them as an example of, of humility. And he goes from children to little ones in your English Bible. And that is because even though it's the, the Greek words are interchangeable, There are two different Greek words he's using, and I believe that it is to emphasize the fact that he's no longer talking about the children we were thinking about. At this point, he's not talking about children. He's talking about the little ones who believe in him. He's talking about the children of the faith. I I, I think you can see this in verse 6, verse 10, and verse 14. He goes from using child, or the Greek word pation, to little ones, mikros or "micros." And I think this is to be compared to the weaker brother or sister in faith in Romans 14. I think it's to, it should be compared to the ones in 1 Corinthians 3.2 that Paul says should be fed milk and not solid food. Or Hebrews 5.12 when the author is frustrated because they should be teachers. They should be more mature, but said they need milk and not solid food. Jesus is now talking about those that are infants of the faith, and he says this. If you're causing them to stumble, it will be better for you to experience a Roman-style execution, one of which is having a rock tied to you and being thrown in the river or ocean or wherever you're at, lake. Now, now, in in regards to these little ones of the faith, to these infant, the weaker brother or sister, they should do what First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. They should seek to continue to grow up in salvation. But what about the stronger brothers and sisters? Well, let me make something clear. Paul makes something very clear in Romans 14, that you can be a stronger brother or sister in one area of the faith, and a weaker brother or sister in another area. You, you could believe that Christians can eat anything, and that would be the stronger view. And yet you may believe Christians cannot drink alcohol. That would be the weaker view. And you know what Paul says for us? That when you are the stronger, you're supposed to become like the weaker. If I have a brother or sister that doesn't think that I should have statues or images uh, of a of a uh, of a, another god or whatever in my house with decoration, then when they come over yeah, it is not hanging up in my house i don't have it in my house anyway, but if I have a brother or sister that think that Christians should not drink alcohol, then around them I do not drink alcohol and this goes on and on when we're talking about non essentials. This goes on and on when we're talking about non-essentials. That means unless the Bible says yes or no to it, and it is clear in Scripture, that we're not supposed to argue about it. I'm still in Romans 14. Paul says that to, uh, tells us to become all things to all people. And in their case, the weaker brothers and sisters, we do not tempt them. We do not cause them to stumble. In that day and time, the biggest, I think, one of the biggest uh, issues was eating certain meats, because a lot of the meat was offered up to idol gods before it was cooked. And Paul says, "Yes, we know that there is no such thing as idol gods. At least they're not real." He's saying, "So yes, I know this meat that means nothing that has been offered up to Poseidon or Aphrodite. Yes, I know that. But guess what? Another weaker Christian may think I'm—I b- I believe in more than one god. If I eat this so around them, I won't eat it." Can, that, that gives you an image of what he's talking about there. You do not cause another brother or sister to stumble. Paul says that whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. I'm still in Romans 14. You do it to please him. You do it to honor him. We do not pass judgment on these non-essential decisions. Instead, this is what we do. Paul says in Romans 14:19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Do Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Listen, am I free in all things? Yes. And you know what I use my freedom to do? To become a slave to Christ. I use my freedom to restrict my freedom. Can, can I play out in the street whenever I want to? Yes. When my son is with me, do I play in the street? No. Because his boundaries and his limitations are restricted. And it can be harmful for him to try to get to the level of maturity I'm at immediately. He has to work his way to it. And some of us are frustrated with the weaker brother, or sister, the younger in the faith, the infant in the faith, faith, because they are not at your level and you forgot it took you 25, 30, 40 years to get there. It took you having a strong support system to get there. I'm almost finished. The faith that you have, Paul says, keep it between yourself and God. So here is the simple part of drinking alcohol. Drinking it when it's against your conviction, Paul says. I can go on and on. Let me move on. I'm, 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 I'm getting now to the danger of temptations because Paul has already said, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm back in Matthew. Jesus has already said, "You do not want to cause one of these little ones to stumble." Can you imagine any 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 of the parents in here? Can you imagine someone tripping your child while they was walk, running just to be mean and made them fall? Wow. Yeah, it's a problem. I hear that. Uh, what, what about this? What if that the child was just standing there and they came and pushed them? Can you imagine anyone doing anything that will cause harm to your child? Parents, I've seen what mother bears can do. Have you seen what a mother human can do? Now imagine what that means to God for you to cause one of his children to be in danger, to stumble, to fall into temptation. Woe to that person. Jesus says, woe to that person. Temptation is necessary, he said, but woe to the, wo- to the one it comes from. And so there's two dangers of temptations in this passage that we have to look at before we before we finish. One is the temptation that you may give to others, the, the temptation you may cause to others. I know we live in society where it's my body. I can dress how I want to. It's, it's my mouth. I can say what I want to. And I know that people are getting a little tense already as I'm saying that. But the Bible does not say that you think about yourself and your freedom first. It says you think about others first. And whether you like it or not, that's what it says. And it says it is better to face a Roman execution than to be someone intentionally causing others to stumble. But here's the other thing. There are so many Christians out here that are living a nominal Christian faith. There are so many Christians that are being hypocritical. It is because of you, the Bible says, it is because of the followers of Yahweh that his name is blasphemed. It's not because of the sinners. We keep naming all these other groups of people that we disagree with their lifestyles, and we keep naming them as the reason that America looks the way they look, and we... And you forget that Christians aren't doing their part. Christians don't look like Christians, but you expect non-believers to look like Christians. Christians expect everyone to act like Christians except themselves. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Then the second thing, the second temptation, warning of temptation, is the temptation you're facing yourself. And listen, Jesus isn't saying Oh, my! Oh man, I, I almost made Richard stumble. Let me jump in the river with a log tied, I mean, a block tied to me. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying that you need to be aware of the extreme uh, punishment that can come from doing so. And so then he says this. Listen, if you have temptations in your life, if your hand is the reason you're, 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 you're sinning because you keep stealing stuff, he says it's better to cut it off. If your eyes keep causing you to cheat on tests or lust after women, it's better to pluck it out. But again, he's not saying that you need to literally do these things. Because why? I can cut my hand off, and I'm still jealous of what other people have. I can pluck my eyes out, and I still lust after women. There's a heart issue that's at at hand here. And no matter what, what all you cut off, your heart, you can't cut out. Your mind you can't destroy and cut out. So he's, not, he's just letting you know the seriousness. He's letting you know how radical you should be against fighting temptation. So listen, no, you shouldn't cut your hand off, but there's some friends you need to cut out your life. You shouldn't cut your eyes out, but there's some TV shows you need to cut out your life. There's some parties you need to stop going to. There's some celebrations you need to stop attending. Christians are too comfortable being in the presence of sin. The Bible is very clear. And, and listen, in today's society, this sermon is extremely radical. I, I get it. I get it. But this is, this is very light compared to what Jesus was telling us to do. Christians, listen, if, if I said, in this in this back door, I have 40 snakes that I'm going to release in five minutes. The people that are terrified of snakes, they're not going to wait to four minutes or three minutes. They're gone right now. And maybe they're in their car. And maybe we see dust flying out of the parking lot. Why? Because they will no part in that. There are some things in your life that have made you say, Get that as far away from me as possible. Or there are some things in your life that you got up and ran as, way, as far as possible. I did a joke on my junior counselors three, uh, two summers ago. Uh, we was at Tigers for Tomorrow. They have tigers and bears and lions and even a liger. They have all these big animals. And as we were leaving, we were finished. We were walking towards the gate, and I walked up beside two of my junior counselors. And I'm just walking normal. I look back. and I said, how did that lion get out? And they took off running. <laughs> Screaming and running. You know what that's an image of? That's an image of what Paul says in, in Romans 14 when he says to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. This, the Greek word for cling is the idea of super gluing yourself to something. But abhorring is to flee its presence. Here's what it doesn't mean I'm at a party, people are getting completely drunk, they're smoking illegal drugs. And I did not participate. I just sat on the couch and watched. That's not fleeing. That's being comfortable in the presence of sin. Right? I didn't rob the bank. I was just a driver. Or I didn't even drive. I was in the back seat waiting for them to get back. That's not fleeing from sin. It is better for you to cut it out of your life and end up in heaven limping with one leg, one arm, one eye, one eardrum, than to go to hell with your whole body. Again, it is better to go to heaven with two or three good, solid Christian friends than to go to hell with 50, 50 bad friends. That's what it's saying. And so then he ends with a parable of the lost sheep. And this this parable, it really brings it all together. Because here in this parable, this sheep, has all the qualities of a child, right? You guys know the sheep, they're, they're gullible. Or Actually, when I'm preaching about sheep, I say they're stupid, but because I'm comparing it to a child, we'll leave it as gullible, naive. right? There's a level of naivety with sheep and children. They're innocent. Sheep are harmless. They have no defense systems. And they're humble. They're probably the most humble of all the animals. And then this parable also brings it all together because we get an image of what it's like for a believer to fall into temptation. This believer, this sheep, is missing from the pack. He has strayed away. And the shepherd, our Lord, goes to get him. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But the shepherd is on his way. Because Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. So this shepherd is coming. He, The 99 are good. They're safe. They're in the right place. I'm going to go. I don't know where he's at, but I'm coming. I don't know what danger the sheep is in, but I'm coming. He could be surrounded by a pack of wolves, but I'm coming. Vipers all around, I'm coming. Hanging off a cliff in a ditch, I am coming. And Jesus says to you that when you do sin, when you do fall into temptations, it's not the end of the world because you belong to a shepherd who has, he's bragging. He is boastful, and he's bragging about this. I have never lost one of my sheep. I have never lost a sheep. And so, yeah, you messed up, but he's coming. And he's coming and he's willing to put his life on the line. And we saw him put his life on the line at the cross. And so in this parable, we can say that the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. He restores our soul. He leads me the paths of righteousness for his name. Say, yea, even though I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, not sheepdogs, but goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do I get in that house? I have to be humble like a child. I have to be humble like a sheep. And it's probably going to require me missing some body parts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word on humility and childlikeness. We thank you that you are the good shepherd. We thank you that you protect us and you provide for us. Father, help us live a life pleasing to you, one that we turn from our pride and arrogance and that we turn towards humility that you displayed on the cross when you died for our sins. And if there's anyone watching or listening now that does not know you, I pray that you will Bring them to saving faith, that you will renew in them a clean heart and right spirit, one that desires you, one that asks, what must I do to be saved? And may the person they ask give them the simple answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. All right, so uh, let us stand for the benediction. I'm gonna figure it out. May the grace of God and the sweet communion of His of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore, till we meet again. Amen.